Listen, I get it. There are about a hundred different Bible study apps and guides out there, but I want to tell you about one that you may not have heard of yet, Yarrow. Yarrow offers beautifully designed inductive Bible studies and a digital app that guides you through scripture so that you can know what it says and understand what it means for your actual life. No matter where you're coming from or what season of life you're in, Yarrow is the Bible study guide that will help you unearth the truth of scripture so that it can take root in your heart and propel you deeper in your relationship with God. Go check out their first study, Known, which is all about your identity in Christ at yarrow.org. They are offering 10% off with the code JOURNEYWOMEN10. So go to yarrow.org and use the code JOURNEYWOMEN10 for 10% off and download the Yarrow app to study for free today. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Bielis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we'll face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we're discussing the authority, reliability, and development of the scriptures with Dr. Michael Kruger. If you've ever had questions about the reliability of the Bible, how it came to be, or whether or not it stands up to scrutiny, this is the episode for you. And if you're kind of intimidated by this topic, you are not alone, my friend. I am standing in the gap for you and asking Dr. Kruger questions for people just like me who really feel the need to grow in this area. Dr. Kruger is one of the leading scholars in the study of the origins of the New Testament, particularly the development of the New Testament canon and the transmission of the New Testament text. Dr. Kruger serves as the president and Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Needless to say, we could not have a better person joining us for this topic. Dr. Kruger, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Well, thank you. Great to be with you. It is absolutely wonderful to be with you as well. I feel like a lot of times when I'm recording the podcast, in a sense, I'm with you and your family as uh, your niece has been a long-term babysitter of ours here at Dartmouth. Uh We love Jane Murray. And Melissa Kruger has been on the podcast in the past, and she actually has such a strong influence on the guests that we choose and the topics that we're covering. So I'm just super grateful for you and for your family, and it's a joy to get to have you on the show today. Well, I think you've already talked to the better half of the equation here, but I'm happy to do whatever (laughs) I can. (laughs) Well, today we're going to talk about something that is kind of intimidating to me, actually, just the authority, the reliability, and the development of the scriptures. And you are like one of the forerunning experts on this topic, I understand. I think it's really incredible to have the opportunity to ask you questions because, yeah, it's just one of those things that I often will read about and I have a hard time getting that information to stick in my brain. So I'm really hopeful that this conversation will kind of bring some things out of the clouds and like down to earth for me personally and for the listeners too. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we all have questions about this. And I think one of the reasons we're talking about this today is because every believer at some point has to wrestle with, why do I believe the Bible's true? And usually that's occasioned by a friend or neighbor or skeptic asking. Even if we think we know the answer, you never really feel like you know the answer until you have to articulate it to somebody. So hopefully this will be a helpful conversation. Yeah, totally. I mean, living here in the Northeast, Brooks and I are at Dartmouth. Um, We're living in a really postmodern kind of context. And I felt the need more than ever before to be more educated on this topic. How did you kind of dip your toe into learning more about this yourself? Yeah, well, my story is very similar to the kind of circumstances we're describing, because it was when I was a student at UNC Chapel Hill years ago that this really Hmm. became an issue. So I grew up in a Christian home and I entered college as a committed Christian, but I was not prepared intellectually for the challenges I was going to face. I'd never really been trained to think theologically or to think in terms of a Christian worldview, and I'd never really been trained to answer objections to the faith. So I believe sincerely, but I really was unprepared. And I ended up having a religion class with Bart Ehrman, actually, when I was an undergraduate. And if you know the name Bart Ehrman, he's an author of uh, many best-selling books, highly critical of Christianity and highly critical of the reliability of the Bible. So I was there as a freshman sitting in that class thinking to myself, 
how do I answer these objections? How do I uh, respond to these critiques? And it took me down a whole path that eventually led to me becoming a professor myself. So it's a, it's a pretty remarkable thing to see what God did with it. That is absolutely incredible. You are a professor, like you mentioned, at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And not only a professor, you're a a president. Like, do you still teach classes? (laughs) Yeah, I do, actually. So I'm, yes, I am the president of the Charlotte campus, but I also am still a professor and I do teach uh, a number of classes every year and still try to write. And I'm busy with a number of writing projects. And yeah, so it's uh, definitely a lot of work with the presidential sort of responsibilities, but you know, my heart and soul is still in the academic side. And I'm thankful to be able to still do some of that. That's really cool. And you have an upcoming book that's actually going to be catering to students who are in that exact situation that you described yourself in. It's called Surviving Religion 101, and it helps college students survive life at a secular university with their faith intact. I'm not in college, but I will definitely be picking that book up. And one of the topics that you talk about is what we're talking about today, which is the authority and reliability of the scriptures. So let's just start off with talking about what claims the Bible makes about itself and whether or not there's sufficient evidence to support those claims. Yeah, this is a great place to start. You know, sometimes I think that the non-Christian skeptic out there has this impression that that the Christian claims about the Bible are are sort of created by us. It's it's almost like this idea that we really like this book. It's so wonderful to us that over time we begin to think of it as something greater than than human, and we sort of attach this additional authority to it as if it was sort of a human invention. I, I like to remind people that's not the origins of this at all. It's not like Christians woke up one day and said, you know, we like these books so much, let's call them God's word or something. Rather, there's internal dynamics to the books themselves that I think point to the fact uh, that they're God's word. I mean, one, of course, is that we do have passages in the Bible that talk about the Bible and actually yeah. talk about what it is. I mean, the most famous, of course, is Paul's language in 2 Timothy 3.16, where he refers to scripture as all God breathed. Okay, we have that. But often overlooked is something even more important, is that the authors of the Bible actually position themselves as spokesmen for God. And this is this is the thing I think that people miss. It's not so much that they go around saying, my books are scripture, my books are scripture, as if that were the thing we should be looking for. Rather, they do go around saying, I have a particular role or office where God has revealed things to me, and I'm passing that along to you. And in the Old Testament, that was called a prophet. And in the New Testament, that was called an apostle. Mm-hmm. And so the prophets and apostles are authoritative spokesmen for God. And so I think what I always want to tell a, a skeptic is, look, Christians aren't claiming that it's anybody can speak for God. We're not saying any Joe off the street can write a book of the Bible. We're saying that the reason these books are special is because we do think they can be traced back to the key people who were in a position to receive revelation from God. And I think that's one of the, one of the key clarifications I want people to know. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, what are some other arguments that someone might utilize to try and portray that the Bible is unreliable, or like you said, that it's irrelevant or that it doesn't actually stand up to scrutiny? Yeah, well, as soon as you recognize that the Bible positions itself as a book that's been written by prophets and apostles, one of the favorite critiques is, well, we actually don't know who wrote these books. You know, yeah, sure, they claim to be apostles or they claim to be certain individuals that maybe say knew Jesus. But then the next round of critiques is, but we don't actually know that they wrote them. In fact, we have good reasons that they didn't. And there were probably later forgeries or imitations or what have you. And so, yeah, you know, our claim is that authorship matters. Their claim is, well, you don't know authorship and therefore you have no basis for claiming these books actually are the authoritative texts you say they are. Mm hmm. How do we know that <laughs> the people that wrote the scriptures really were like Paul it really was Timothy. It really was these people that we believe wrote these books. No, that's a great question. So people ask me all the time, how do you know a book is from God? Or how do you know a book is, is inspired? Or how do you know a book belongs in our Bibles? And there's multiple answers to that. One of the answers, and I emphasize just one because there's other ways to know. But one of the ways we know is by doing some historical deep dive into why we think these books are written by the names attached to them. So yes, this is what scholars do. This is what I've committed my own career to doing is looking into the historical evidences and really asking, are there good reasons to think these books are written by the names attached to them? Now, of course, in a podcast like this, we can't go book by book and talk about all the evidence for each one, but I'll give you one example, which I think will help. So take the Gospel of John. And I I mentioned the Gospel of John because obviously it's a very favorite gospel. It's purported to be written by John, the son of Zebedee, who is uh, obviously one of the immediate disciples of Jesus, who is uh-huh. an eyewitness to these things. Do we have any reason to think it was written by John? 
Well, actually, we have tons of reasons to think it was written by him. And I'll just mention a couple. One of the places we often turn, we want to know what who wrote a gospel, is what the early church fathers said about who wrote that gospel. And the reason that matters is because they are a lot closer to these things than we are. And when it comes to the gospel of John, there's a second century church father by the name of Irenaeus, who is very clear that John wrote John, that was written by John, the son of Zebedee. Now, Irenaeus got his information from a guy named Polycarp, who was a a mentor to Irenaeus. And here's the catch, and I want your listeners to grasp this. Polycarp actually knew the apostle John himself. Wow. So just let that sink in for a moment. When Irenaeus tells us that John wrote John, he's only one person removed from John, namely his own mentor, Polycarp, was mentored by John himself, which I just say, yeah, could Irenaeus still have gotten it wrong? Well, yeah, lots of things are possible. But in terms of historical probabilities, we're looking at a very tight connection there. That's In a court of law, that would be a very good chain of witnesses. And so that provides a good basis for thinking that this book really does go back to John the Apostle. Mm, That's so good. Could you tell us just a little bit about the Old Testament? We're going to hone in on the new here in a moment. How long did it take for the Old Testament books to be compiled? And then is there pushback to the reliability of those Old Testament texts? Yeah, so the Old Testament and the New Testament, of course, are both very important to Christians. My side is the uh, NT side, but the OT side has its own challenges. In fact, arguably many more even than we have to deal with on the New Testament side. And there are many ways it's critiqued and attacked. As far as when we feel like we have an Old Testament in place, sort of the books compiled and recognized as a collection, uh, we would argue that was in place by the time of Jesus. And this is an important recognition. When Jesus came, and of course, Jesus's disciples soon thereafter writing their letters like Paul and Peter and John and so on, that first century timeframe, it's pretty clear that there's already an Old Testament in place that was fairly agreed upon by pretty much everybody in conversations. Let me explain what I mean. Think about all the disagreements that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders of the day, Pharisees or the Sadducees. They argued over everything. I mean, you pick the theological topic, they argued about it. Here's what's one curious fact is they never actually disagreed over what was in the Bible. In fact, Jesus would often cite scripture to them and they would even cite scripture to Jesus and they would have back and forths maybe over how to interpret that or what it meant and they would have debates over these sorts of things. But there was never a moment where Jesus says, as it says in the book of Joshua, and then they say, oh, we don't have Joshua in our Bibles. No, that never happened. It is a remarkable amount of agreement. In fact, so much agreement that Jesus feels quite content to hold people accountable for what the scriptures say. Think about it for a moment. How could you hold people accountable for what the scriptures say if they don't know what's in the scriptures? Mm -hmm. That's just not gonna happen. So apparently in Jesus's own mind, he could say, you're responsible for, and you know, what the scriptures say, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. And he could only do that because he knew that by his day, it was pretty well established that these were the books that were included in our canons and no others. And I think that gives us an early piece of evidence for its trustworthiness. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Moving on to the New Testament, can we also trust the historical reliability of the Gospels? Like you were talking about John here just a moment ago. Yeah, I think the Gospels have tremendous evidence for their trustworthiness. But as you know, there may be no books on the planet that have been more critiqued than our four Gospels. I mean, if we were going to argue that the Bible is the most critiqued book as a whole, you could make the argument that the four Gospels are the most critiqued books within that Bible. And there's probably no books that have received more scrutiny, sort of more uh, careful examination, more attention in the entire history of the world than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that really is a remarkable thing in its own right, just that these books have attracted so much attention. And of course, there's been skeptics. Many people have said, no, you can't trust the Gospels. They're chock full of mistakes historically. They contradict themselves. They aren't written by who we think they are. And of course, I already mentioned part of the the response to that claim. But I think time and time again, the Gospels have proved themselves to be trustworthy. And again, in a short podcast, we can't go into all the particulars of this, but I'll give you one example. We are claiming as Christians that the Gospels were written by first century Jews, Um, at least in the case of Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke, we think, was a Gentile. But nonetheless, people in the first century who at least would have lived in Palestine or been familiar with Palestine and known the topography, the geography in the area. So we can test that theory. We can ask very simply, do the Gospels show evidence of someone who is aware of, say, where the cities are located, how you travel from one to the other, what topography is, customs, um, the type of language that's used, names, what you call people, these sorts of things. We can actually test that historically. And scholars have written extensively on this and shown that the Gospels are incredibly 
uh, aware of first century reality, so much so that almost certainly they have been penned by somebody who was there as an eyewitness who saw these things. And so when you look at evidence like that, it actually shows the Gospels are quite trustworthy in terms of what they're telling us about Jesus and about the first century. Where do you even start with that when you're like, okay, I want to test this. Like, maybe take yourself back to when you were in college. Like, where is a good starting point for someone who actually wants to follow kind of the questions that they may maintain about the reliability of the scriptures in general? Well, I think one thing I try to tell people is let's imagine for a moment that, say, John was not really John, but some other guy who's just outside of Palestine, wasn't Jewish, isn't aware of what really happened, and he's trying to patch together something that sounds like it took place. Yeah. Right? What would it look like if that happened? Well, what are the chances that he would get all these things right? Um, and, I, and I remind, this is particularly true for current students and, and current folks. Look, it's not like John in the first century could Google things. I mean, think about it. It's like he could Google like the traveling between Nazareth and Jerusalem, or he couldn't Google <laughs> what, the, what the temple looked like. He couldn't. One of the classic historical questions is, the Gospels are filled with a lot of names, okay, Jewish names of men and women. Are these what names were common during the first century? How mm. would a person who didn't live in Palestine know which names were common unless they were there? As, as an example of this, think about people who live in the North like you versus people who live in the South like me. If you're writing a fictional story about someone in the South and every name you chose is like a name from like New York or yeah. New Jersey, you'd be like, that person never lived in the South because in the South they have double names, they have last names for first names. You know, you can sort of get a sense when you meet somebody, oh, this person's clearly from the South, and you know what names go with certain regions. Well, it's like yeah. that true in the ancient world, and we can test it. The, the, the reality, though, is that faking that would have been nearly impossible because you couldn't have had any way to know. Yeah. The fact that our gospel writers consistently get it right is really, really impressive. Wow. It sounds to me like something you have found and that I have found is like when I have questions, instead of running away from those questions and thinking, man, I'm just not going to address them, like pressing in might actually probably lead to more questions, but then also give like a sense of assurance because it's like, ah, this really is what we believe it is. Yeah, I, actually, I would encourage your listeners on that score. I think this is a really critical takeaway for anyone listening today, which is, look, you don't, you don't, have to go get a PhD in biblical studies. No one is saying that you have to be uh -huh. an expert in, you know, Near Eastern archaeology or something like this. But we as believers ought to try to go deeper into understanding why we believe what we believe. And I want to remind people, there's nothing to be afraid of here. It's like, you just don't want to know. But, but I think you do want to know whether these books can be trusted. And I think you'll find that the deeper you go, the more reasons you have to trust them. It doesn't mean there's not hard things. There are. That doesn't mean there's not complex questions that can be things you have to wrestle with. But I think that just makes your faith all the more rich and full-orbed. And I think we all want to be people who believe with our eyes wide open and not believe pretending and wishing things were a certain way with no reason to know that they are that way. Well, we've talked a lot about the Gospels, and you mentioned that those are probably the most contested books from the canon of Scripture. Can you talk to me like about what some of those problems that people have are? I mean, obviously, like just the validity of like Christ rising again, like all of those things. Is that some of it or is it mainly the differences between like you're saying, maybe even the names, genealogies, things like that, that people take issue with? Yeah. So when people object to the Gospels or any part of the Bible, for that matter, I usually try to help people understand that there's sort of three categories that objections fall into. This might be useful for your audience, too, and, and just for anybody who wants to understand this. So here's the three categories. The first category of objection is what I call historical origins, and that has to do with where the book came from and who wrote it. Okay, so that's a big category. You know, when did these get collected into a canon, and who are these authors, and can I trust them? Okay, so that's a, a big part of it. A second place that people object to books, particularly like the Gospels, is they have, have they been faithfully copied and transmitted? So this is a separate question. It's not so much, you know, who wrote the book. But even if John wrote John, do we have John? Has John been copied by scribes faithfully, or has the text been changed thousands of times, right? There's a whole bunch of scholars who claim it's been changed so much that you can't trust it. I, I disagree, but that's a category of debate. And then the third category is objections over content. This has to do with someone reading the Gospels and just not liking what they see. I will suggest that in our modern day, this is more common than we realize. And there's an example of this that I think our, our listeners will, will resonate with. Almost all objections now from the average person are actually moral in nature. People have moved away, interestingly, from historical objections. And when I say people, I mean people on the street. 
scholars still bring up historical objections, but the average person on the street just isn't familiar with historical objections. What ends up happening is they object to just things they don't like. They're offended. They're bothered. They can't believe that anybody would believe these things. And they think, my God would never do that, say that, or think that. And so we have to be ready to deal with moral objections to the Bible, which are a rather unusual place to find ourselves. What would it look like to deal with the moral objections that people maintain? The first step is to kind of get a little bit of a repertoire of what you know they're going to be, right? There's probably going to be some fairly predictable ones. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one obvious predictable one is the exclusive claims of Christ. Right. So the idea that, 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 that Jesus is the only way to heaven, people will be very, very bothered by that because in their mind, this looks like a condemnation of all other views and how could you do that and how could you know that and so on. So there's sort of, sort of visceral reaction to that. Other people object to a God that judges people. Like how could you have a God that judges sinful people and whether that's an, a temporal judgment uh, like the flood or maybe an eternal judgment or what have you, people are going to be thinking, that's morally offensive to me. I can't believe that. So whatever the objection happens to be, we need to be ready for them. And I think there's lots of ways we can respond, but and we could lay out the Bible's own logic, and we can talk about why it makes sense within the scriptures themselves. But I think a really good way to respond is also to ask the person who's making the objection where their moral norms come from. And I think this is not something most people are prepared to answer. So most people like throwing out moral objections, but what they rarely get is someone challenging them to account for their own moral standards. Uh So if someone says, I don't like the idea that God would judge people, I think that's wrong. Well, then I could just ask them, well, where do you get right and wrong from? And apparently there has to be some objective standard in right and wrong because you're actually objecting to the Bible on this objective standard that you're saying the Bible doesn't meet. Well, where does the standard come from? You'll find very quickly that most people just don't have an answer to that. Do you ever find yourself so busy that you can't find time to prioritize God's Word? Dwell Bible app can help you out. With Dwell, I can listen to and meditate on the scriptures in the car, in the middle of the night, or while I'm making meals and tending to the needs of our household. Incorporating the Bible into everyday moments is so easy with Dwell. I am constantly using the playlists on walks or as I fall asleep to review the scripture that I have been memorizing. The soothing background music, the ability to select your preferred translation or narrator, the sleep timer, and the read-along feature with Dwell make it the most helpful Bible reading app on the market. Their newest release is called Dwell Daily, and it will help you immerse yourself in the Word, pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for 25% off. What about the other objections that you mentioned? You talked about the authorship of the Gospels and then where they got the material. So who were the authors of the Gospels and where did they get their material? Yeah, well, here's where we're on good footing. We actually have great evidence, as I suggested a little while ago, about who these authors are. We, we have names for them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know that Matthew and John were the immediate followers of Jesus, part of the Twelve. And we know that Mark and Luke were connected to immediate followers of Jesus. Mark, we know that was basically a disciple of Peter and got his information from Peter. And Luke seems to be connected to the apostolic circle as a whole, particularly to Paul. So everybody who wrote a gospel is either a direct apostle or an apostolic companion. And why that matters is because that positions them in a place where they could know these things. I tell people all the time, look, if you had an opportunity to choose between a gospel that was written, say, in the first century by someone who was positioned to know these things versus a gospel that was, say, written in the second or third century by someone who lived, you know, 100, 200 years later, I mean, which gospel would you choose? Absolutely the first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're going to go with somebody who at least has a shot at being an eyewitness or at least knew eyewitnesses and could have interviewed those eyewitnesses. And so the gospels are in just such a great position here with these four authors because they're positioned to be the best shot we have of getting someone who is an eyewitness. Now, the other thing I'll mention too is they're not just eyewitnesses. What people often overlook is they're actually authorized eyewitnesses. And let me explain what I mean by that. It's not just they happen to be there randomly like a newspaper reporter or something. The authors of these books, or at least the sources they're using, are actually commissioned by Jesus to tell his story. So this is what apostles were. Apostles were people sent out by Jesus empowered by the Spirit to truthfully tell his story and to tell that story to those who who followed them. And they obviously decided to write that story down on paper. 
And so once you realize that, it's actually not just an eyewitness biography, but it's actually an authorized eyewitness biography. It's one that Jesus actually commissioned himself. So when you add all that up, you actually have multiple layers here of why these, these gospels are so unique and why they can be trusted. Why are there some variancies? And maybe this isn't a helpful question because it's not specific, but why might we see a variancy between the historical accounts offered in the gospels? When you say, you, you mean like like what seems to be contradictions or do you mean like scribal variances like within the manuscripts? That's a great question for clarification. I mean, like me as a person just reading through the text, if I'm cross-referencing between Matthew and John, ah, or Matthew, okay. you know, yes. if, if the story just is ever so slightly different, yes. why, why is that the case? Very good question. So you're asking about differences between the Gospels. Yeah. And I, and I think this is important to probe into because I think sometimes people read a story in Mark and then read the parallel story in Luke and it's slightly different and they're concerned and bothered by it. And, and I think part of the reason we're bothered by it is I think we sometimes forget, and this is understandable, that we forget the way history is done. And we also forget that history was done in, in the ancient world a little differently than we would do it in the modern day. And we have to take those things into account. You know, just as, as far as the way history is done, we have to realize that every time someone writes history, they are inevitably selective in what they tell you. That means if you tell a story and you are there with someone else and they told the same story, they're not going to tell the same story you tell because they're going to remember other details that you may not remember. They're going to hone in on certain things they want to emphasize. And even when you tell the same story multiple times, even if it's the same person telling it, this is something you need to realize. Sometimes you'll tell it differently. Why would you tell it differently? Because the audience is different. Maybe you have more time, less time. You include details or you cut them out. Every telling of a story is going to be different by virtue of all the circumstances that surround it. And so we should expect that our gospels would be different. Now, notice the word different is not contradictory. Uh -huh. Differences are not contradictions. Differences are just that. They're just differences. And I think this actually speaks to their reliability. What it shows is they were not in collusion with each other. It's not like they had some big smoke-filled meeting where they said, okay, guys, let's make sure we're all on the same page because we're effectively making this up. No, they, <laughs> they independently told the story, and it's the kind of thing you'd get in a court of law where you had witnesses all witnessing the same thing. They're going to tell it a little bit differently, but they're all giving you the same big picture. Okay, so moving outside of the Gospels and looking at the entire New Testament, how did those books make it into the canon of the New Testament, and how were they formed? The growth of the canon is an interesting thing to observe. So we have 27 books in our New Testament, and obviously before there was sort of a coalescing around all 27 books, I, I remind people that the process is going to take time, right? It doesn't happen overnight doesn't happen immediately. And the reason is, first, not all the books are written at the same time. There's quite a wide variety of time between the earliest New Testament book that was written and the last, probably nearly 50 years, actually. So you have a big gap of time in terms of when books are written, but then some books are just more popular than other books. So they're going to get used more. And it takes time for some of the smaller books to circulate, get used, get recognized. So it's going to take some time for this to take place. And, you know, I always remind people they themselves, when they read their Bibles, don't favor every book equally. You know, when's the last time you, you heard a sermon on Jude, I ask people? Or when's the last time you did your devotions in Third John? Probably never, actually, for most people. <laughs> and if I were to say, well, do you think it's inspired? Well, yeah, they'd say yes, but it just gets used less, and so you don't think about it or utilize it as often. Well, in, in the early church, as the canon was being put together, similar sorts of dynamics were at play. So it took time, particularly for the smaller books, to get recognized. Here's the good news. The core of the canon, and when I say core, I mean about 22 out of 27 books, the core of the canon was recognized very early. By the middle of the second century, and realize this is only about 60 years after John was written, by the middle of the second century, we see the church pretty much agreed upon 22 out of the 27 books. So that means they're, they're agreed on the four gospels, Acts, 13 epistles of Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, Hebrews, Revelation. That's a pretty stunning amount of unanimity. And so I always tell people, what you should be surprised by is not that there were some ongoing debates about books. What you really should be surprised by is how early there was unity about books. That's the story. The real, the real news story here is not disagreement. The real news story here is how much unity that the church had and how early they had it. Are you looking to boost your protein intake in the new year? Many of us are not getting enough protein, especially at breakfast. So PrepDish wants to help you out. For the month of January, PrepDish is offering bonus protein boost meal plans when you sign up. 
This free bonus shows you how to quickly prep four protein-rich dinners and one breakfast to help you reach your protein goals. Each menu will have you covered for the whole week. You guys, these meals are super mouthwatering and delicious. They have slow cooker carnitas bowls, stuffed pepper soup, and a Swiss chard mushroom and goat cheese frittata. Just imagine coming home to a ready-for-you protein-rich meal to refuel after a long day at work. This is a limited time offer, so make sure to sign up before the end of January to get these free bonus meal plans. Head into your healthiest year yet, feeling confident that dinner is planned, prepped, and will sustain you for all the things you have going that day with Prep Dish. Check it out and get a two-week free trial at PrepDish.com slash journey. Remember, for the month of January, anyone who signs up gets the Protein Boost Meal Plan bonus. Again, that's PrepDish.com slash journey for two weeks free plus bonus menus. What do we do with the other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas? And you fed me that question, and I barely even know what that is. So <laughs> as much as you want to explain that, please do. Yeah, yeah. I just laid out the argument that our 27 books, you know, were largely put together by the middle of the second century, at least the core of them. But one of the objections that comes up is, well, wait a second. What about the so-called lost books? Mm-hmm. Or what about the, the books that didn't make it in, that have become quite famous in their own right? One of those and most famously is known as the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is a book that did not make it into our Bibles. It was discovered really in its full form in, in around 1945, and they realized there was this gospel attributed to Thomas that never made it into our Bibles. So people read that and hear about that and think, oh no, you know, maybe we've got the wrong canon, maybe we've got the wrong books, and it causes in some quarters a little bit of panic. But really, there's nothing to be that concerned about here. When we look in the, into the early centuries of the faith, we do see other gospels circulating. There's not just Thomas, there's others as well. But they all have one thing in common, and that is all of them were written in the second century or later. And this is the key takeaway for whoever's listening, is that whether it's Thomas or the gospel of Philip or the gospel of Mary or what have you, and there's a variety of these kinds of other gospels, all of them are written in the second century even in the third century or later. And what that means is that none of them were actually written by the followers of Jesus. They were always written by someone else much later after the time of Jesus who just wanted to attach a famous name to these books in order to give them credibility. So Thomas is not the author of the Gospel of Thomas, in case someone's wondering. We know he can't be because Thomas was long dead by the second century uh, when that book was written. One of the questions that is circling through my brain as I'm listening to you is just about how letters circulated, how the books circulated around the early church. Like, how did they get these books into their hands and how did they kind of intake them on a personal level? Most apostles just put it on their private Facebook page and that pretty much took care of it because then, you know, people just clicked on it and there you go, right? <laughs> you raise an exact question, which I think is, is really important for people to realize is in the ancient world, when you want to distribute writings, it obviously did not work like that. You couldn't put it on your Facebook page. You couldn't send it out to anyone in an email. You couldn't put it on social media. The way books circulated in the ancient world is that there were copies made of them. So for example... Paul writes a letter that we now call the letter to the Romans, and it gets sent to Rome. We know how it got there. Apparently, it was carried there by Phoebe, who brought the letter to Rome, from what we can tell. What would have happened after it got there? Well, we have a tremendous amount of evidence for this, is that almost every church that received a letter from Paul would have made a copy of that letter, and then it would have been passed along to other Christians after that. So what you have is is a distribution network where Christians make copies. In fact, we would argue even Paul had copies of his own letters. Um, and this is how books were, were quote-unquote published in the ancient world, is that they were copied, and then there were copies made of those copies, and it spread throughout the world in such a fashion. Now, that may sound slow, and certainly compared to modern technology, that is slow, but actually Christians were quite well-known for how well-networked they were. They were very busy writing, copying, corresponding, traveling, interacting. They were champions at this, so much so that books spread really rapidly in the early centuries. And we can really see that in the historical record. Wow, that's so cool. How seriously did they take the project of copying the text? Yeah, that's a great question. From what we can tell very seriously, and we know this from lots of different ways, you know, in as much as these books are regarded as scripture, and we have good reasons to think they were at an early time, we know the, the opinion about these folks about what they would have done with scriptural books. Part of that is known because they were Jews, right? They were Jews that had embraced Christ as a Messiah. And so they already had scriptural books, namely the Old Testament. And so what would they have done with scriptural books? Well, they would have been careful to preserve them. 
copy them, not to add or take away from them. So we already know that culturally, they had built into their own sort of theology, this idea that you, you don't mess around with God's word in a way that alters it. The other thing that we see, though, is in the manuscripts left behind, and we have many of these, we can see the scribes are very careful in their copying. We, we can see the evidence of even what's called early scriptorium, where scribes would, would copy a book and then another scribe would come along and correct any mistakes and actually proofread that copy so that it was consistent with the original. Now, that's not to suggest that there weren't textual variations that seeped in. There were, and it's not to suggest that every copy was, was as good as every other. There were some copies that were lousy. Some scribes were just not very good scribes. But as a whole, we can see quite a bit of consistency within early Christianity and the scribal networks we have. And they were really did a good job copying the books, so much so that we can really trust the books we have now or what was written then. I always notice those little passages in my Bible where it's like, this is not included, you know, in, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what do you do with those when you're preaching and teaching? I know you often will teach straight through a book. Yeah, well, this is a great opportunity for people to reflect upon how the Bible was put together. And I tell my students all the time and I tell people in my church all the time, look, the Bible was not lowered from heaven on golden tablets. OK, we're not we don't treat the history of the Bible like you do in the Book of Mormon, right, where they believe it was delivered by the angel Moroni on golden tablets. That's not the Christian way of understanding that. We, we think God delivered the Bible through what we would call normal historical channels. And as soon as you think that God is delivering the Bible through normal historical channels and it's going to have inevitable historical things that, that happen to it. So some books get lost, some get burned, some are copied well, some are copied poorly. And over time, you're going to have some textual variations that seep in. So when someone reads their Bibles and there's a little footnote that says some manuscripts don't have this and some do, it's actually not a cause to panic because I would point out, look, first of all, how rare that is when you read your Bibles. It's, it's remarkably infrequent that there's any significant variations. That's the first thing. And then secondly, of course, that's going to happen. I mean, it's not as if God sort of, you know, waved a magic wand over all the scribes in the ancient Mediterranean world so that no scribe anywhere ever would ever miscopy a book. And, <laughs> and I, and I want to challenge people on that because sometimes I think we have this sort of naive perception about the way the Bible was transmitted. It's not <laughs> transmitted that way. And so you're going to have some of that. That's normal. And it's, it's nothing to be worried about. Well, I know there are listeners that are struggling right now with just believing what the Bible says about itself, believing that the Bible really is true, believing that it really is reliable. How would you encourage somebody who finds himself in that place? Yeah, well, a couple things. First, I would encourage them that they're not alone. Sometimes we have this impression when we doubt or struggle that I'm the only one that doubts and struggles, and therefore I'm a bad Christian, or I'm not a very good believer, or I'm just subpar or something's wrong with me. The first thing I would tell those people is, no, no, that is not what's going on. There's nothing subpar, there's nothing wrong with you. It is very normal for Christians to ask these questions. And you should be free to ask these questions without any sense of guilt or frustration over that. And so I think they just need to, to realize they're in good company. And that's been true from the beginning. From the very earliest centuries of the church, we see people wrestling with these issues, and it's very normal to do so. The second thing, though, that I would add is, you know, even if you recognize you're in good company, you still need to respond to those questions and doubts by doing something about them. And people react in different ways. Some people just sort of pretend it isn't happening and don't want to think about it. Some, you know, kind of just hope it goes away. I would say, no, you need to dive into the issue as much as you can and start mm -hmm. wrestling with the key historical questions of the faith. And now, again, as I said earlier, I'm not asking for someone to go out and get a, a master's degree or something, but I think a simple way to start is find a good book on, on why to trust the Bible and just start there. Just read one book on why the Bible can be trusted or why the Gospels can be trusted. And there's some really good ones out there that are introductory, that aren't crazy thick. You know, my, my book, Surviving Religion 101, that releases in the spring, I deal with a lot of questions on a very basic level for people. That would be a good book when it comes out. Um, and there's many others out there that I think are basic introductions to these questions. And I would encourage people to see it as an opportunity, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to learn something they don't know. Um, so they could really understand these things better. How can we in the church be more hospitable and welcoming of those questions? I think a lot of times we feel ashamed or embarrassed to admit that we're having questions, you know, about uh, something as serious as the authority and reliability of the scriptures. But how can we kind of cultivate a welcoming environment in which we can explore those questions together? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I, I certainly want to agree that there are some churches that are not welcoming about that. And that just needs to be admitted. There are some churches that sort of shame you if you ask questions. 
There's no room for hard questions. It's like we don't ask those questions around here. We just, quote unquote, believe. And I disagree with that approach 100%. I think, therefore, churches do need to cultivate a culture of asking hard questions and, and, and welcoming hard questions. How does such a culture get created? Well, I think it starts at the top. Whoever's leading the church, whether it's the main pastor who preaches on a Sunday morning or other staff, part of what I think can be helpful for people is for those leaders to say themselves, hey, I've been a person who's had questions. And when I've had questions and challenges and doubts, here's where I went. And you're not alone. And we're going to have a Sunday school class over the next eight weeks to address these things or something along those lines. The book I mentioned, Surviving Religion 101, is actually that very thing for me. I actually say in that book, I was a student. I had doubts. I struggled with what I believe. You're not alone. And here's the answers I found. It's a chance to relate. It's a chance to say it's okay. It's a chance to create safe space for people to have mm-hmm. those questions. What I think is a mistake, though, and churches sometimes make the opposite mistake, which is to pretend like, okay, everyone has questions and everyone has doubts, and we're going to never try to answer them because, you know, there's never really answers to these things. That's just life. Life is filled with doubts. Just, just deal with it. Well, no, that's not the answer either, right? There are doubts. Yes, we want to be honest about them, but we also think there's answers. And I think it's okay to, to dive into those answers and see what they are. So we have to be open to the doubts, but we also have to be open to the answers. And some people actually don't want answers, interestingly. And I think I would challenge those people too. Mm. It's such a serious thing because there's implications. There are very real implications for trusting that the Bible really is true. And I imagine if you have those doubts, there's going to be implications in your life if you don't explore those things and and take them seriously as well. So what are the implications of trusting that the Bible really is true and reliable in the life of a Christian? And just period, end of statement. (laughs) Yeah, golly, there's so many. Well, I mean, at the ultimate level, obviously what's hanging in the balance is this, these books make a lot of claims about eternity and about salvation and about how one goes to heaven and, you know, is Christ the way? So obviously the first thing everyone's concerned about in terms of the anxiety over doubts is, can I have some sense of security about the future and about what I believe in light of my questions, right? So I think you got to deal with that. I mean, you know, it's not overstated to say that eternal matters are are in play here. They are. And so someone has to be able to answer uh, these questions, at least at a base level, because eternal matters are in play. But But I'll add to that. Secondly, it's not just eternal matters that are in play. There's a lot of day-to-day practical matters that are in play. I mean, the Bible provides guidance on all parts of our life, you know, guidance on how we think about our jobs, how we think about marriage, how we think about sexuality, how we think about our children, how we think about, you know, the way the world works and what you should do or shouldn't do with your time. And I mean, these are very practical things that just guide a person's life. And so, you know, being able to trust the Bible as as God's word, you know, really does affect everything. And, you know, sometimes that sounds like it's overstated, but it's really true. It does legitimately affect everything. Mm-hmm. It is our very life. Well, this has been super helpful for me. I know there are listeners, myself included, who just really want to develop their knowledge in this area. This is definitely a weak point for me. What are some practical steps that we can take? I'm for sure picking up your new book in the spring, and we'll be sure to share that with them when it releases. Are there any other steps that you would suggest we take if we're wanting to grow in this area? Yeah, I do. And, you know, the, the my book in the spring is my first lay-level book that my wife, Melissa, has kindly encouraged me to write for many years. And I have stubbornly resisted because of the many other publishing projects, but I'm glad it's finally been written. But before I wrote that book, I actually had another outlet for my material for lay people. And by lay people, I just mean non-experts. And that's my website. And so my website is actually called Canon Fodder with one N. And so there's a pun there if someone doesn't get the pun. Yes, I actually looked up cannon fodder like <laughs> proper and yes. realized it was, it was a whole different thing. <laughs> exactly. And so you know, people misspell cannon and they put two ends in there. And I just remind people, well, the biblical <laughs> cannon has one end. And so cannon fodder is technically a play on words. But on my site, and they can just Google my name or Google cannon fodder and they'll find it. But I have a ton of material on there for lay folks, helping them understand why do we trust the Bible? Where did it come from? You know, is it historically consistent? How was it transmitted? I have videos, lectures, podcasts. You know, I'll even probably provide a link to this podcast when it's uh, up on there. So there's tons of stuff there. There's many other scholars out there who try to work for folks on lay levels. And so my, my suggestion with people is start sniffing around. Find out some good stuff out there. Ask your pastor. 
Ask your Christian leaders who they, what they recommend. For Christian leaders listening to this podcast, I encourage you to start talking about this stuff more. Have a Sunday school class. Have a, a Bible study about it. Have even a sermon series about it, why we trust our Bibles. We assume people just have this figured out, and the honest truth is they don't. And we, get a, we need to be more honest about the things our people are struggling with. I appreciate you meeting me in my honesty <laughs> today. And I think the listeners will just be so encouraged by this. One of the questions that I've asked your wife and many other guests on the show is kind of a girly question, Dr. Kruger. But I will <laughs> it's okay. say- I can handle it. I can handle it. <laughs> I have asked uh, a few other men and it's always fun to get to know you guys a little bit better. So what are three of your simple joys? Yeah, I saw this on your uh, list you sent me, and I was thinking, you know, I don't get that question a lot in the kind of <laughs> podcasts I do, but that's okay. So sort of three simple joys in life I love. Some of these may sound cliche, but they really are for me. I love uh, just time at home in the evenings with my family. After a busy day, where we're all together, usually over a meal, but even if not over a meal, we're catching up. It's just one of the things that makes life sweet. I didn't even mention that you have so many kids. I hear so much about Emma, but tell us how many kids you have and what ages are there? Yeah, we have three. Emma's in college. Actually, she's at UNC Chapel Hill. Ironically, I wrote the book for her. I wrote I wrote it for all my kids, but she wow. was the one that it was dedicated to in terms of the letters. I wrote it in the form of letters to her. How cool. So she's at Chapel Hill. She's a sophomore. My son, John, he's a future engineer, I'm sure, probably in the space program. <laughs> and uh, he is uh, a junior in high school. And then my, my daughter, Kate, she's, she's, she's our live wire. I love her. She is an eighth grader. So all three of them are precious. And it's just a delight to be with them. And that, that's certainly one of the sweet spots of life. You know, other joys, I love slow mornings with my wife. Saturday mornings, we'll get coffee and spend the morning just chit-chatting together and catching up from a busy week. Those are special times. And then personally, I love to go to the coast and fish. So one of my big joys of life is getting out on the water and fishing. And that's a place where I actually can unwind like like nothing else. Well, I so appreciate the work that you've done for the church, just the Big C Church. It's such a gift to be able to have a resource that I can trust personally when I'm exploring some of these questions. You've definitely had an impact on my relationship with the Lord, even at a distance. And this podcast was really birthed out of having an abundance of mentors in my own life. And I love to get to hear from every guest. Who is it that's had the greatest impact on your own uh, relationship with the Lord? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think when I was in college, my freshman year, at the same time I was going through a lot of these intellectual questions, there was a, a couple older guys, a couple seniors who took me under their wing hmm. and uh, discipled me. And they introduced me to good theology, to books to read where I could find out why I trust the Bible. And they actually get a lot of credit on a human level for leading me down the path of a, of a life in ministry. And, and uh, you know, I owe them a great debt for that. And they've really, really invested in me. And I think about that because I think that just highlights why mentoring is so important because we, we're changed by lots of things in our lives, but we're changed by other people investing in our lives perhaps more than anything else. Absolutely. Melissa has a really great book called Growing Together that I found super helpful on the topic of mentoring. And that leads me to one last question that I'd like to just wind things down with. As someone who takes it seriously, just the command to go and make disciples and to be teaching other people about the things that Jesus has commanded, what does it look like for us, even in our own insecurities? Like, obviously, I've admitted to you, this is like a weak point for me personally. Like, how do we humbly come alongside those who are mentoring who have questions like this? And what's the significance of that, even when we don't have all the answers? No, that's a great point. I actually think this is one of the reasons that people don't go down this path with people is because they think, unless I have all the answers, then, then what I do isn't helpful. I want to encourage people today that that's not the case. If you're mentoring a Christian and they have tough questions that you can't answer, or maybe if you're talking to a non-Christian and you get tough questions that you can't answer, first step is just admit you can't answer them. So rather than fudging your way through it, pretending you know more than you do, just say, look, I don't have the answer to your question. That's a great question. But you know what? The good thing is, is that the, the Christian world is filled with many who do study these things and have answered these questions. And let's together work on this and find resources that can answer this. And we'll, we'll walk through this side by side and find out the answers with each other. And I think that's a posture of humility, but it's also a posture of recognizing that just not having an answer is not the same thing as not being an answer. And I think that's the number one thing for people to realize. If you don't have the answer, that doesn't mean there's not an answer. It just means you don't personally have it. And you need to then take the steps with your friend 
your maybe even your non-Christian friend and go find it and find it together. And I think you'll find that that not only gets you the answer, but actually uh, improves that friendship because you did it together. You didn't just tell them what what to believe. You actually went together, found it, studied it, and, and figured it out as a, as a pair. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I think this is going to be such a help to others as it was to me. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, Hunter. Great to be with you. Wasn't that so helpful? I hope this is an episode that you can just bookmark and come back to as you inevitably bump up against questions of your own regarding the reliability of the Bible and as you're coming alongside others who have them too. If you want to check out the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find all the details on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're a regular listener, we would love it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. I read every one and really appreciated this one left by Jay Howard, who said, Literally every time I listen to this podcast, I feel the desire to open my Bible and connect with God. I feel like I'm right there with great friends who exhort me to pursue my relationship with Christ. Thanks to all of you who have taken time to leave us a rating or review. It really does help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful as they navigate their journeys to glorify God. Today's episode was edited by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On, Sound Off. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week. Thank you.